welcome to Risk Roundup. Since the beginning of times, we humans have been creating tools to help us interact with the world around us. Now we are moving inward and developing the tools to help us interact with the world inside us. While the nature of tools has evolved from physical to digital and now neural, our brain is effectively becoming the tool for interaction, communication, and influence. From electrode being implanted in the human brain to transmit and receive signals to non-invasive gadgets that translate brain waves into commands that control not only computer but also body parts are already becoming a reality. As a result, the thought of any technology that can be weaponized and used for manipulation of brain waves to change human behavior or control human behavior is becoming terrifying. So the question that needs to be evaluated is not whether this emerging mind control technology can be weaponized, but when, how, and by who. To discuss mind control technology further, I'm honored to welcome Professor Newton Howard to Risk Roundup. Professor Newton Howard is a brain and cognitive scientist. He is a former director of the MIT Mind Machine Project and is currently a professor at Computational Neuroscience and Functional Neurosurgery at the University of Oxford where he directs the Oxford Computational Neuroscience Laboratory. Welcome, Professor Howard. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very much for having me. Wonderful, Professor Howard. So each layer of cyberspace evolved our potential to connect. Now, cyberspace has connected aquaspace, geospace, and space, and has also connected individuals and entities across nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia. Now we are moving towards developing a brain net, and it seems there is a rat race to developing the brain-computer interface. While connecting our brains directly into the web seems both very exciting and terrifying, where are we going as the brain-computer interface evolves further? Uh, certainly the ability to uh, use uh, uh, brain-computer interfaces, devices, as an IoT and assume an IoT of the brain, brain-to-brain uh, -brain net, if you will, uh, is becoming a reality uh, in the near future. Uh, to date, the technology is only capable of uh, certain therapeutic effect uh, as it's used uh, as a deep brain stimulators. And um, certainly uh, the classes of technology that exist today uh, does not have the adequate security uh, to uh, accommodate for the risk. Yes, very true. I mean, what you just uh, described, the brain-to-brain, -brain, you know, uh, communication happening in the interface, that is one development. And then there is the other one that is brain-to-computer interface. So there, there are two different, you know, uh, parallel developments have been happening. And it seems the brain-computer interface has advanced a little more than, you know, brain-to-brain -brain interface. And uh, there are many great potentials because you can use the technology for uh, education system. You can use it for communicating just... Uh, and once we develop the brain-to-brain -brain interface further, there will be no need for web, there will be no need for computers, there will be no need for phones. So it is you know, going to be very disruptive, it is going to be very transformative, and there are great benefits. But where exactly, what is the current state of the brain-to-brain -brain interface? Where exactly are we in the development? Is it still very early stages or we have reached a commercialization potential? Brain-to-brain uh, -brain interface is much more difficult than the brain-computer interface uh, uh, between a machine and the brain uh, for the reason that uh, understanding the actual brain language uh, or the currency that 
is communicated at the neuronal level. Uh, it's something which it requires uh, substantial further work. Uh, while the brain-machine interface, uh, the ability to connect your neurons, uh, has you know kind of leaped into the ability to connect to tens of thousands of neurons, uh, we're still further away uh, from connecting uh, with a million neurons at a time, or perhaps the entire brain. Right, right. That, that, that's uh, very interesting. So, I mean, irrespective of whether it's brain-computer interface or brain-to-brain uh, -brain interface, it seems that the integration of AI is happening in both the, you know, uh, different uh, pathways that we are, you know, moving forward. And the possibility of being connected to AI would mean that our actions will flow less from our own judgments and thoughts and what's in our best interest and more from what data and algorithms have decided, which is, you know, that could be best for us. So how do you see this shifting the human narrative, the human lives in the coming years? If we if we actually to uh, adopt uh, brain computer interfaces at the appropriate level and adequate security, obviously, and uh, uh, consideration of the ethics uh, of use and ethics of development, uh, we can have a, a you know a relatively strong therapeutic platform uh, for various disorders, uh, especially neurodegenerative and others. Uh, leaping from there, if the device were to be used uh, for brain augmentation, uh, then we are looking at a completely different uh, type of uh, modality of use that requires a completely different level and a completely different ethical review. Uh, one is about uh, five years away, uh, and augmentation is more uh, like 10 to 15 years away. Um, the augmentation in itself is not a bad uh, use case for uh, brain-computer interface or brain-to-brain -brain interfaces. Uh, it is just the ability to control uh, the genie out of the bottle, if you will, uh, when it comes to uh, other uses that uh, requires further further review. Yes, absolutely. Now, it seems that uh, EEG, the electroencephalogram, has emerged as a promising way for paralyzed patients to control devices. Uh, like computers or wheelchairs by wearing a cap, you know, uh, and undergoing training to learn to control a device like wheelchair by imagining that they are moving a part of their body or triggering commands with specific, you know, mental tasks. Is there still a need to wear a cap or have an electrode implanted in the brain or we have uh, moved further that where we can just have, you know, small tiny device or something like wearable, you know, in our head? Uh, and we can communicate uh, brain to brain or we can communicate, you know, uh, brain to computer. So the, the uh, EEG uh, use uh, has been very much exhausted uh, as, a, as a brain computer interface. Uh, the next phase is the intrusive phase, which is the, uh, the, the ability to actually read and write by implanting uh, electrodes and optrodes and in uh, uh, various uh, uh, shapes, uh, planar, uh, as well as the, uh, the actual uh, 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 pin type. Um, the ability to leap to the next level is determined by how much information we understand about the signal pathway and uh, connectivity, uh, uh, and basically retract that uh, into a uh, neuron of origin or a function of, or a space of function of origin, and then being able to track that back to the organ uh, or the area where you're mounting uh, 
the patch and whatnot. Right. Now, the AI uses the combination of the brainwaves and the sensor data to work out what to do and what will happen next. So how is this interpretation achieved, you know, if we talk in the scientific terms? So you, you basically collect the data from um, the brain in the case of the uh, intrusive method or the method where you're connecting uh, LFPs, you connect, you're connecting uh, to the neuron zone and you're collecting the electrophysiology or the electrical activity in that area, uh, isolating a spike train, time, intensity, duration, wavelengths, um, and uh, reprocess that information uh, into some level of feature analysis or a support vector or a machine-like learning algorithm and uh, compute from there some inferences of value uh, to the function specificity of that zone uh, and then use that understanding of the function specificity of that zone uh, to redirect uh, a stimulation recipe or a modulation that can correct uh, whatever anomaly that we sh we're seeing in that area. That's very interesting. So brain to brain, if we you know evaluate that, what is the current state of communication possible? Is it possible to communicate like full sentences or is it just some words at this point? We at the moment uh, in my group uh, have spent out uh, a company from Oxford called NI2O, uh, NITO, Neurons Input Output. Uh, and we are able to develop a device that read and write uh, in modality uh, real-time, uh, thereby uh, it depends on where it's placed. So if it's placed in the broken Warner, you would be able to cipher uh, things like full sentences. Oh, that's very interesting. So what, what are your, uh, what other uh, initiatives uh, that you are working on, especially, you know, your lab, what other topics uh, or what, problems you are trying to solve uh, through the research? We concern ourselves with three things. Uh, something we refer to as the brain code, something we refer to as the fundamental code unit, and the device that collect and uh, read and write uh, utilizing the BC and FCU. Um, one enables us to understand the disease state uh, as a code-breaking system, if you will, and the other allows us to understand the currency of exchange and the communication exchange model of the actual neuronal level activities. Oh, that's very interesting, very, very interesting. So now uh, if we look back, since 1780s, I believe when Galvani discovered these electrical currents and laid the foundations of modern neurophysiology, we have learned to use electronic te electrical technology, electrophysiology to study, you know, so many different uh, problems or, you know, pathways or the anatomy and the structure and uh, metabolism and physiology of the, you know, uh, the brain, human brain. So if we look at it broadly, where are we in terms of advances in the technology aspect that uh, we're using digital, you know, uh, electroencephalogram systems, EEG systems, we, we can use human brain as a biosensor, but have we moved past the EEG? Have we come up with new technologies that can help us, you know, advance the brain science and neuroscience, you know, and give us a better understanding of the complex, you know, neural pathways, what causes, you know, the, the mental health problems or what causes, you know, uh, what, how, when we are doing any activity, what kind of, you know, neural changes that happens, you know, what kind of neural spikes happen. And uh, when the stroke happens, you know, how, you know, the, 
neurons are deactivated degenerated and then what we can do so those kind of problems to solve to understand that and to solve those complex problems do we need new technologies or we have what we need and we will be able to just we just need more time to solve all those problems uh certainly certainly eeg has not growing out of its use if you will um and it will be here for a while the resolution of eeg is not at the level or at the resolution that we would desire uh there is a spatial temporal resolution of a uh uh different scale uh that requires a uh, different type of equipment like mri fmri that scan and what not the problem is in the size of these uh, scanners and the fact that they are not uh following the patient during adl or activities of daily living uh during adl uh a revelation of the various functional uh structures and the various uh structural relevance of the brain uh comes into play and unfortunately uh unless you are able to develop a microscopy at the level uh that you can be carrying the brain uh in the field of microscopy uh during the ADL uh, you will not be able to see everything at the appropriate resolution so we're far away from that uh, there've been ideas of uh using uh nanoscale structures and do what's called um uh, uh you know uh back propagation back scan and what not but it's not really at the size that that is that is desired yes yes no that that's uh, i understand it's a really you know uh important point and i hope that you know we develop more technologies that can help us advance further but if we look at bioelectrochemical signals bioelectrical signals it can stunt or grow brain tissue and the human body's electrical activity seems to be based on the relative concentration of salts uh the level of salt you know in the body and the based on the advances in understanding it is now possible it said that it's now possible to identify a person with the bioelectrical activity of the brain with 100% success so my question is does everyone have different bioelectrical activity in his or her brain and if it is then would this create a problem as we try to develop the neural you know communication person to person you know brain to brain and we are trying to advance you know the communication and we are trying to uh, do many activities you know using brain to brain communication and try to you know just override the internet or try to override the phone communication system and much more do you think that would play any significant role uh, in as we try to advance this uh, technology further well think of it this way the 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 brain has something like similar to morse code um uh with fixed numbers of uh, uh letters you're able to orchestrate a very sophisticated communication and convey substantial meanings or similar to the dna where you have four variables but then you can construct all kind of structures from that um that's that's essentially what we're facing here when we refer to as the brain code um the uh, the exhibited brain code or overtly expressed brain code from the brain and the uh uh the, the fundamental code unit which is the currency exchange 
Um, these are fixed variables, the meaning and what's being conveyed and the structure that is being created. The brain is interesting in the sense that you would have white matter and gray matter that looks the same um, you know, in everybody, but yet creates this tremendous difference between one person and another. Um, the white structure is also uh, being looking the same, but exhibiting outwardly functions that are completely and vastly different. Uh, these are fundamental uh, questions that uh, still substantially uh, in the works. Yes. And um, uh, when you think of the journey of the brain as a, it's a journey of over a thousand years as we can date it, uh, it goes back to uh, Plato, uh, Aristotle and Herophilus and what they were doing in that area and trying to understand uh, where is the faculty of the mind presides. And they settled and concluded back then uh, that it's in the gut, in the heart, and in the brain, uh, or what's what we call this, what we call the current brain. The, the advancement from that notion uh, hasn't leaped uh, much because recently, uh, recent publication has been talking about the significance of the gut and the significance of the gut flora uh, in relation to the brain and the relation between the gut flora and the gut uh, and dis you know, disorders like uh, Parkinson. Uh, so we, we, are, we are rediscovering what has been uh, already agreed upon uh, over a thousand years. So we yeah. haven't really moved far. <laughs> Yeah, so you're right. I mean, these are very complex, you know, questions. And if you, I was thinking, you know, that uh, in right now we are focusing only on, a, especially for humans, we are focusing only on our brain that it is the center of the activity. But like you just said, you know, now we are also coming up with new, uh, you know, knowledge that you know the gut flora also plays a role. And I, if you look at the octopus. You know, then we see that, you know, they, they have not just one brain, but I mean, they have one central brain, but they also have in each of their tentacles, they have, you know, a separate brain. So, I, I mean, it's possible that we still have not understood our, you know, human system properly. I mean, it's possible that even our heart or even our limbs, you know, there are, uh, you know, small neural cells everywhere, you know, that are controlling, you know, the movement. So there is still a lot to understand. And I, it's fascinating, you know, so in the coming years what uh, uh, we are able to understand what discoveries are made and what technology you know come, helps us to advance this further it's going to be very fascinating you know the knowledge that we receive and the intelligence that we get from that but since the day we discovered that neurons convey information via electrical spikes which can be recorded with a thin metal wire so it's you know very easy so and now you know using computers and you know AI, it's much easier now to uh, record, you know, all these uh, new electrical spikes that are happening, you know, neural spike because of the neural activity. How far has, do you think the research has come and where exactly we need to focus? I mean, you uh, discussed, you know, that, you know, the complexities now, the gut flora and, you know, other uh, parts that, you know, that are developments that are happening. But from your assessment, where we need to focus broadly to be able to understand, uh, you know, the human mind and mind control, you know, even more in an accurate way, probably. Well, there's a lot of room uh, for understanding and ciphering and mining the data in the uh, noise space of the data. 
uh, our technology has not grown to the ability to make sense of all of that that is captured, uh, but only a very few and a very small amount of what's captured is being understood and ciphered. So focusing in that space can yield a lot. Um, the the risk and the security and ethical implication aspect uh, requires uh, further dialogues on uh, the appropriateness of certain use cases, the limitation over the scope of these use cases, uh, the control over uh, the privacy aspect uh, or the management over the privacy aspect, if you will, uh, and the control of the security aspect uh, is yet to be um, completely debated and uh, some policies uh, be put in place uh, to manage that. Yes. Uh, I say every day, Everyday technology that we use in uh, our life can be used for good and can be used for bad. Yes. Uh, and it's quite interesting that the, the device that articulate and guide and command that very much is the brain, which is at the center of the act itself. Um, yes. So. Yeah, very true. These are all dual-use technologies. So uh, we have to, I mean, it, it has great transformative potential and we'll be able to do a lot of good with these technologies. But if we are not mindful and if we don't uh, prepare ourselves properly, then, you know, yes, you know, a lot of security risk will emerge from that and it can be used for bad. But if you talk about the neurons that convey information via these electrical spikes, have we reached a stage where we can understand the language of spikes or the language of neurons? Because each of these are all electrical spikes only. And, you know, using AI, deep learning, machine learning, we, we should be able to, in the coming years, if not now, in the coming years, we can probably define the whole language, you know, how these spikes happen, when it happens, and what each spike and, you know, how the space between there or you know the duration or the intensity each of that could be uh, you know just like you know alphabets it could be let you know a language that we can develop and if we are able to develop the language of neurons then i mean there is so much that we good kit that can come out and then there are enormous securities that can emerge because you know anybody with that language or that control can control the entire human population around them. That is true. So the the work we've been doing and ongoing on the fundamental code unit aims very much to to achieve uh, that objective and beyond. Uh, to date, we can understand parts of that currency, part of that exchange mechanisms, uh, the geometry around it, and the modalities around it, the number of modalities, the uh, uh, relevant uh, uh, signatures, the, the relevant features. Uh, and we published that work in um, uh, several volumes of uh, writing, uh, some that is uh, uh, patented and some is academic publishing. And I encourage the readers, uh, the viewers, to uh, Google Fundamental Code Unit of the Brain uh, to reach some of those publications. Oh, that would be great. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of our viewers and listeners would love to, you know, understand that more and they will, you know, take, uh, they will benefit from the information that you just shared. Now, it seems that recording the electrical activity of just a few dozen cells in the brain 
can provide us a fairly accurate picture of how someone in, intends to move, you know, their arm or, you know, their head or what action they're going to take. So how are we advancing our understanding of reading these electrical activity that can give us an ability to know what action will happen even before it happens? So, that, so that, that sits at the core of having to uh, uh, having the ability to uh, place within the region of interest uh, a brain-computer interface device uh, that is able to record and simultaneously uh, stimulate or remodulate uh, the necessary and coherent uh, modulation pattern to correct some of the deficit uh, that is generated in that in that in that initial spike uh, or the spike train or the um, uh, the message that is being communicated between neurons, um, we've been working on such a device and we refer to it as the Kiwi. Uh, and the Kiwi is a chip, uh, a sensing uh, uh, chip as well as a system on a chip that enables that read and write modality simultaneously. Uh, from a particular region of uh, projection or region of interest uh, that we believe that may have a problem uh, or we're trying to address a problem. Uh, in the case, uh, in concrete cases, like where we place the device in the subthalamic nucleus uh, to work on uh, Parkinson, for example. So this, this chip that you have designed, will it have two-way communication or just one-way communication? You said read and write, but the read yeah. and write both ways. Okay. It is, it is, it is two-way communication. It, 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 it communicates directly with the neurons in the zone of projection where it's placed uh, by sensing the electrophysiological and uh, activities and the chemical viscosity of the uh, or, or concentration, if you will, for uh, certain uh, neurotransmitters, uh, and then uh, recreate the necessary solution to bring that zone into harmonic frequency uh, that integrates it back into the rest of the brain uh, when it's in the first order is plagued and is not functioning properly. So what is the distant, uh, distance that is required for the chip to be able to read and write? Is it, uh, does it need to be on the head or uh, does it need, it can be uh, like, you know, several feet or, you know, how, how far it can be and still be able to read and write? It is actually placed inside the brain up to layer five. Oh, so it's embedded inside. Yeah, it's embedded within uh, up to layer five. It's chronic, meaning that you don't have to take it out. Uh, uh, it then communicates internally and externally, uh, internally with the neurons uh, to do the correction uh, and externally to uh, a PDA system or uh, a mobile device system or the cloud uh, to integrate with the uh, master operating system and uh, resync to update drivers, update software, etc. That's very interesting. So is it something like a molecular chip? Is it that small or a little it bit one, It is 1.9 by 2.2 millimeter, about the size uh -huh. of a grain of rice. That's very interesting. I mean, uh, that, uh, then, you know, we, we can probably download all kinds of education. I mean, knowledge that we want, you can uh, update, I mean, upload, not download. You know, you can do a lot of things, you know, there, there will... Uh, 
I think probably education institutions will be outdated, you know, once we go further in this, because we're just having that chip, you know, you can transmit all kinds of knowledge and uh, there is not going to be any need for any professors or educational you know, systems. We there, are will, there will be need always for tested and, um, you know, different type of activities for learning because learning yes. learning is inefficient in one modality and is very efficient in various modalities. Um, the, you know, education is uh, interesting. You mentioned education, education, as we know it today is struggling already with yes. the classes of technology that exist and the amount of information that is available. Uh, when you, when you used to be, if you need knowledge, knowledge in physics is limited to being able to go to the tutor on physics or your, your teacher only. And now you have anything from Khan Academy to uh several other learning methods and toys and things that you can buy in the market and whatnot uh it makes subject like physics more fun uh, it makes it more available uh it makes it more integrated into uh, uh activities of life uh it, it give it another meaning other than it is that thing that i uh notionally have on the list of things to do to graduate high school or to graduate with college and whatnot, so yes. it's a just a fundamental shift uh, that is taking place right now, and then there's a second wave uh, when uh, you can have a brain-computer interface-mediated learning, if you will. Um, yeah, that 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 is amazing because that is a necessary shift. Like you know you. Uh, as we all know, I mean, the education system is struggling and uh, it's very ineffective and it takes years and it's, uh, you know, this one standard, you know, educational plan for every student doesn't work. So with this kind of, you know, advances, we'll be able to customize it and, you know, uh, help each child, you know, learn it in a very interactive, in a very, you know, fun way and uh, attain the, you know, potential that uh, the child is supposed to, you know, attain. So this is very fundamental and very necessary necessary and I look forward to seeing the advances there but now if we talk about as you just described about the chip you know that it will be embedded in the brain you know the small size chip and it it, it, it has both uh, read and write capabilities now as we see scientists have been building better and better decoders the software to interpret the neuronal signals so over the years, there are a lot of, you know, advances in decoding this. So that has enabled us to experiment with more ambitious control schemes. So do you see that we, as, as far as the interpretation of the signal goes uh, and the decoders goes, that we are having effective decoding system or we still need to uh, advance there? And uh, if we need to advance, where exactly do you think are the challenges and where we need to focus? This is more so that, you know, the, this discussion, because a lot of, you know, young students also listen over, you know, Risk Roundup and from all across nations. And everybody is so passionate right now. If you see the, not only millennials, but, you know, all different, you know, uh, generations that they want to contribute, they want to provide, you know, wherever, help wherever they can so, to solve the problems facing humanity and these kind of questions are more towards so they get some guidance that where are the challenges so they can work towards that and uh, they can try to you know help innovate and contribute towards solving the problems there there is a there's a lot of advances that is required uh in that space uh in decoding space if you will 
uh, a lot of uh, synchronism and collaboration that is required between researchers. Uh, I would say that we will see leaps beyond what we have today uh, in the next uh, seven to 10 years uh, in vertical and horizontal AI as it emerge. And from that emergence, uh, there will be uh, tools and more critical math, uh, mathematics that needs to be answered uh, to get to the level where we can seamlessly say that we understand what's happening in uh, region X of the brain. Uh, it's communicating Y and so forth. But uh, I'm optimistic that that work will come and we will see it uh, during our lifetime. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, you know, one uh, one point I have been thinking about, you know, since we agreed that we are going to talk about this topic is that, uh, you know, any intent that any of us have, you know, that we want to take a left turn or a right turn while driving or, you know, doing any action like lifting a cup or whatever, uh, that intent, you know, is taken, the message is communicated immediately and the AI takes over. Uh, in certain areas where, you know, AI, there is a shared, you know, uh, control with the AI chip or the system. And uh, AI takes over that, yes, this, you know, person wants to uh, take a left turn or a right turn and, uh, you know, takes a decision based on that to, you know, so that uh, no accidents happen if they're driving car or, you know, if uh, somebody is in wheelchair, then, you know, that the person wants to move the wheelchair to right or left, depending on the task that uh, the AI the human wants to take but i have been thinking about this that with this kind of shared controls now humans would not uh, need to continuously instruct a wheelchair to move forward or you know to drive a car or anything you, you just give one you know message and uh, the ai picks over the ai software picks over and you know takes uh, the decision so the decision then you know does not is not taken by the humans it's taken by the ai so now humans, as we know that no, not everyone has the control over their mind, the control over their thoughts. One second, you know, somebody think that, okay, I want to, you know, exit here. Then next second say, no, I don't want to exit here. You know, let me just uh, drive further and then I will take an exit. So in those kind of scenarios, I mean, humans, most of the humans we know are not very decisive in their actions or in the, even in their thought process. The thoughts, you know, fluctuate. The thoughts, you know, change, you know, every second, if I may say. So in those circumstances, if by merely thinking, you know, one second and then AI takes over, would that not trigger, you know, some kind of conflicts or some kind of accidents or, you know, security risks? Because human mind is very, you know, not very decisive in a lot of areas. Right. So... When it comes to when it comes to action, a physical action of, uh, uh, say, driving a car, uh, your engagement with the vehicle to command it to say go down the street to a supermarket, um, it involves a volitional, you know, a, 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 an act of volition and an act uh, of deliberate uh, uh, plan. That architecture, if you will, is loaded into your cognitive space. Uh, where you're then acting uh, and breaking this instruction into a smaller action uh, of guiding that vehicle into the physical space, uh, which has been plotted already uh, by a level of autonomic type 
uh, construct and all the way to the end action where you're pulling to the final parking lot, say, going to the a store in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a market in the market or whatnot um, that whole action architecture uh, is created at the time when you acted that you're going to that market all of that and all of that is loaded if you will in the various region of interest that are going to guide that action through uh, and your volitional uh, and your control mechanisms kick in uh, to act on uh, individual decisions. Do I go to the road that goes on the right or to the road that goes on the left? Which one is more efficient um, in direction? Is efficiency in direction matters to me or am I avoiding traffic? So the, 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 uh, the level of autonomy is wide. Uh, the canvas is wide and in the canvas of this action, a lot of decisions have already been made and reloaded. Uh, it's only a matter of uh, correcting segments or fragments of this order architecture that comes during the time of the act itself. So the system, uh, autonomous level driving uh, systems, uh, have these type of volitional um, uh, setting and mechanisms um, uh, to accommodate the naturalistic process of the same apparatus. So do you think we will need to develop controls and put in place so that unwanted thoughts are not sent to, you know, our brain or, you know, unwanted thoughts from our brain are not sent to the AI because every human being has... A, we all have dual thoughts. I mean, some most of the time we have good thoughts, but there are days, you know, everybody has bad thoughts. You know, they want to do something, you know, uh, that uh, normally they wouldn't do. And uh, I mean, a lot of them commit suicide. A lot of them, you know, commit murder. A lot of, lot of different activities, you know, happens because of that momentary lapse of, you know, control over their brain uh, and the thought process. So. When we are, you know, when we are integrating this human mind with the AI and the AI taking over then, you know, and uh, fulfilling that uh, task or desire, then I think, you know, we will need to put some sort of controls in place so that, you know, we have to train AI that if there are, you know, this kind of uh, dark thoughts, then, you know, give it time or, you know, some sort of process needs to be there before it, you know, commits that kind of uh, action. So do you think... We are working towards that. Um, they're all dependent on the authoring of the code itself. There's some authors of the code uh, would integrate uh, what's called affective um, uh, computing methods, uh, or people that would include volitional and intentional uh, methods, people that would include uh, personality uh, characteristics uh, into the code. So. It all depending on integrating these libraries and what is your goal, your end goal. If your end goal is to have a robot drive you from point A to point B, avoid avoiding obstacles and collision, and you using a collision avoidance system that is sophisticated to have volitional decisions between notions of risk, between notions of making decisions over the hit a tree or a hit a human. Um, a lot of that work is obviously is in is in uh, 
is in place right now and taking place. Uh, and um, uh, it has to incorporate filtering mechanisms, uh, secondary overrides to the decisions of the machine, uh, control, uh, override, so forth. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, you see some of that, uh, we'll see some of that coming on the road uh, in the next few months, not even a few years. That would be very welcoming uh -huh. because uh, we do need to develop some sort of, uh, like you said, operating you know system. But uh, code is the operating system, right? I mean, if we not only the for the cyberspace, but also for any of these augmented systems that we develop, you know, any of the technology that wherever we use any software, wherever we use AI. So if code is the constitution, then we need to make sure that these security controls are embedded in the code so that you know, we can prevent this kind of you know imminent disasters because human mind is the very fluid and we cannot uh, be confident that every second, you know, every signal, every thought that is generated is going to be for the good and for the future of the humanity. I mean, that could uh, create, you know, a lot of dangerous things. So I, what you just said is very welcoming. Now, another, you know, thing I was thinking is that you talked about the chip that is uh, being going to be augmented in the brain, implanted in the brain. Now, there are also some who were just a skull cap, you know, and there are variables will also come in the coming years. So there are going to be many different kinds of uh, uh, these uh, interfaces that we'll be using. Uh, to achieve the mind control technology. Now, when we try to capture any, irrespective of what uh, you know, technology we use, uh, what form of technology that is cheap or you know, wearable or any you know, skull cap, when we try to capture the brain activity through the skull, it's hard to know where the signals are coming from and when and where the signals are being generated because we still haven't understood exactly, you know, everything about uh, how many millions of neurons are there and uh, their interconnectivity and the pathways and all that. So the big challenge is, I think, uh, can is it possible that uh, we push, we can push these absolute limits of the resolution both in space and time? Because it seems that it will be necessary as we move forward with uh, trying to develop applications and try to you know, develop solutions for a lot of these health challenges and for even for any other industry. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is these are the things that is going to require uh, time and uh, patience. Uh, the user adjustments uh, would have to be in parallel to the development, uh, time and space. Um, as I as I said, you know, the the optimism level is very high for that technology, but all what it takes is it's for it to be in the wrong hand. Uh, of one person using it in the wrong way, and uh, we would have a disaster on our end. Um, so these things have to go in parallel mechanisms. Um, you know, the development, the uh, the security, the privacy, the uh, 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 code base um, functionality, uh, the region, um, the region of interest that we target is very very small is roughly a you know one centimeter cube uh but it can vastly alter the functions of the person uh substantially uh and uh in our case we direct that toward the restoration of human dignity by curing the disease and disorder yes. uh, and get rid of uh, uh, some of the neurodegenerative 
uh, consequences, if you will, in an adult population. Oh, that is really good. So we, the diseases that are under uh, experimentation to be treated, to be you know solve the problems. Which ones are we focusing on? Are are they all like mental health diseases, or we are also looking at you know the. I, I read somewhere that there are a lot of advances in in also restoring vision and things like that, and you know paralysis and stroke and uh, so. Are what what different diseases are in radar right now? Our focus is a platform that allows for uh, going after neurodegenerative disorder as well as other disorders um, that where deep brain stimulation has been a success. Uh, we find that over 100 indications uh, is a possibility of a target use. Uh, we find that um, you know the data suggests that four trillion dollars in mental health. Um, you know, spent, and uh, we think uh, we can actually reduce significantly this, uh, uh, you know, expenditure, um, you know, that is committed um, toward uh, basically a solution that is sustainable and effective and chronic and be able to uh, provide for additional indications after we manage to understand the neurodegenerative nature. Yes, no, very true. Know that those are really very welcoming, uh, you know, paths of research that are happening, and uh, we would love to see, you know, what else is coming from your laboratory. So, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially about uh, the in not only the initiatives that you're working on, but any where you would like to see the global, you know, research community to focus when, when especially when. Uh, the mind control technology or, you know, the brain-to-brain -brain, uh, interface uh, advances, you know, needs to happen. Where would you like to see those advances? I would say that, that um, to focus all the efforts um, or most of the efforts into curing and fighting disorders and fighting diseases is uh, the best uh, thing that we can do for uh, ourselves, uh, no nation can survive undignified uh, for long, and to see our elders uh, uh, suffering to the level of what we see in Alzheimer and in the Parkinson and the Huntington, uh, without any cure and without um, uh, massive effort to uh, achieve a cure, uh, it's uh, counter to uh, the very notion of us being human. Um, so it's very important that we unify our efforts into that uh, focus. Um, I would say to develop a healthy uh, skepticism uh, toward what is AI and uh, what it can do for us, uh, but not outright reject and fear uh, the capabilities that is available to us for the use, for the good use. Yes. Uh, and uh, once we do that, uh, we can not limit our creative uh, nature and uh, propel, uh, you know, put our energy toward a constructive way of directing and focusing AI as opposed to just outright fear it and reject it and uh, not accept what it can do for us. 
Absolutely. No fear. There is no place for fear when it comes to progress and development. All we need to do is, you know, identify where the security risk can emerge and put, you know, proper effective controls there so that we do we are not, uh, you know, unprepared for what could come our way. But the progress and development, you know, science, uh, we have to, you know, make sure that it goes forward. And AI, we are creating this, you know, at entirely new intelligent species and we need to make sure that we can use that you know the full potential of that for the progress and development and for the future of the humanity because it's not just about the digital age it's about the spaces that we it's already you know initiated and we are looking at you know different planets and where we can you know create homes for us or we can do asteroid mining or uh, there is a need going to be need for you know ai and uh, the robots so this this technology that we are developing is very, very useful and we need that. Without that, we won't be able to explore the universe. Not only, you know, explore our human mind, but also explore the universe. So thank you so much, Professor Howard, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on mind control technology and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the current state and potential and complex challenges facing nations and the human health and diseases. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to understand and advance the technology and create applications to solve the problems uh, facing humanity the, for the human health or any other industries. Uh, based on the discussion we had today, this risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Howard. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology conversions, and transformation happening across cyberspace, aquaspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to the management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcasts, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.